Welcome back to the Death with Dignity podcast, episode 10. Roger Kligler is a retired medical doctor currently living in the state of Massachusetts. In this episode, Roger shares his journey with cancer and advocacy experiences and gives us a glimpse into his life as he prepares for a lawsuit against the state of Massachusetts which would declare that medical aid in dying is not criminal under Massachusetts law, meaning prosecution of any physician providing medication to a qualified patient would be unconstitutional. Thank you, Roger, for sharing your story with us and being a strong advocate in the legal realm regarding medical aid in dying. Welcome, everybody. Uh I'm Andrew Flack, and we're here today with Roger, Dr. Roger Kligler. Did I say that correct? Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We're really excited to have you on the Death with Dignity podcast and excited to hear your story and uh, some of your experiences. I always like to just start by asking the guests a little bit about themselves, general background and information anything you'd like to share related to your educational experience, uh, family, personal stuff, hobbies, anything like that. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I grew up on Long Island, had a really um, great family, great family experience. You know, the, you know, the things that are worth a million bucks, uh, you know, supportive parents, um, went to good schools, you know, all those sorts of things, got to go away to camp in the summer. So, you know, definitely, you know, first world type of experience. Um, we also, as part of a family that like to um, help other people and, you know, my parents taught me that and, you know, all of, all of us being my parents, my sister and I all went into, um, or always work to help people. Um, I went to, um, after college, I went to Georgetown um, Medical School where I uh, found my two loves, uh, my wife of 43 years and mother of our three children and uh, internal medicine. Uh, After I graduated, I became a workaholic my my addiction um, and uh, ended up practicing after one year in upstate New York in Brockton, which is a majority minority community, um, uh, majority immigrant, underserved doctor area. And so I was able to do it all um, in medicine. So internal medicine, back then is really different from what it is now. Back then, you know, I'd get up in the morning, you know, I'd go into one or two hospitals, see my patients, if they were really sick, they're in the intensive care unit as they're attending, meaning I called the shots on their care, round in the hospital or two, then go to the office, see, uh, see people, 
things happened badly in the hospital during the day. Sometimes I'd have to go back there or to admit a patient in the evening. I'd often go back to the hospital. So I took care of people in the hospital, in the office, and um, in nursing homes. So I had long-term exposure to people. Um, oh, I'll kind of stop there and let you uh, ask another <laughs> Excellent. question. That, that, thank you for sharing that information and some of your background. Uh, Georgetown, wow, very cool. And you still live on the East Coast, I presume? Yeah, so I um, grew up in New York, um, went to college in Pennsylvania, then Georgetown in uh, District of Columbia, um, did a year at Cornell, and then went out to UC Davis, um, where I, I love the West Coast, and I was trying to convince my wife um, that we should uh, be West Coasters. I lost that uh, lost that discussion, and we came back to the East, and um, one year in upstate New York, and then Massachusetts. Okay, very good. Are you still practicing? No, I, I've had cancer for 20 years. And seven years ago, I just couldn't do it anymore. I had some, uh, I, I have like so many medical problems. It's incredible. But I just uh, found that my mind wasn't working the way it should be. And I just felt ethically I could not work that way. I talked with my neurologist. He said, you should go out of work. And I kind of stopped on a dime. You know, I hadn't planned a retirement. You know, I was hoping I'd be able to get back. I used to have dreams about it all the time, um, but was never able to um, get back to my uh, beloved profession. That I can imagine would be a very difficult transition, a, a sudden and kind of difficult thing. However, just from hearing a little bit about you and this brief discussion. I'm sure that you helped many, many people in your time in medicine. And it seems as well that you're continuing to help in different ways within the medical community and the community itself. Can you tell us a little bit about medical aid and dying and uh, just your advocacy for that cause? Sure. I'm just going to step back a little bit if that's okay. Sure. So medical aid and dying was something that I started to support when I was 40. So that's 30 years ago. Um, I watched my mother die of pancreatic cancer. I watched my father-in-law die of an abdominal sarcoma, which is soft tissue cancer in the abdomen. And they both had really not so great deaths. And I said to myself, no way do I want to die that way. You know, I'm a doctor, I'm smart, you know, I'll, I'll figure out some other uh, option, you know, if, if I do that. And that was my initial discussion thinking about me. Later, as I kind of matured a little bit, I thought about justice, which is the ability of one person's able to do something and to have uh, one outcome. Other people should be able to have that outcome as well. And so my quest for having an easier death became my work for medical aid and dying as a social justice issue. 
I feel that you know everyone should have it. And now we have 22% of the country has it and the rest doesn't. And I don't think that's very just. When I was working, I took care of people at end of life. I told you I was an ICU attending. Um, I took care, I was a hospice doctor for my patients when they'd go on hospice. So when they'd get cancer, I'd you know send them off to an oncologist, but I'd say, I'm here for you. I'll be here till the end. And you know, if they're not able to, you know, cure you, you know, I'm still here. And so they'd come back and I'd be their hospice doctor. Um, I would sometimes give patients palliative sedation, which is when people have uncontrollable pain that you can't get under control any other way, giving them medication to put them to sleep so that they will die with comfort. Um, and I also did palliative care before there's a specialty out of necessity. You know, you're dealing with people with end-stage cancer and stage, end stages of life. I had to kind of learn on the job how to help people that way. So one week after I retired, um, my wife, who is like made me so much better than I ever would be, um, was you know, very helpful in helping me to transition. And there was a lecture by Compassion and Choices, which is the nation's largest and oldest nonprofit devoted to improving end-of-life care. And um, she said, there's a lecture downtown at something called a death cafe. Now, I don't know how many of your listeners know what death cafes are, but they're... Um, people get together and they talk about end of life issues. And it's not a bereavement group or anything along those lines. It's just people talk about what issues they have. How do I get my kids to accept that I'm getting older and dying and I don't wanna do all these things, those sorts of issues. Um, we have the oldest group that's ongoing every month in uh, Massachusetts. It's been going on, I think eight or nine years now. Um, but they also do something called death education, which is not part of the death cafe. And in it, they had someone come down and talk about it. And um, we listened to the talk about medical aid and dying. And my wife and I looked at each other and I said, this is something that I think I want to work on. And she encouraged me. And so I've been working on it ever since. So... Um, that was uh, a little over seven years ago. And so I started working on medical aid and dying, which just in case your listeners don't know, is the practice in which a mentally competent adult with a prognosis of less than six months to live requests from their doctor a prescription that they may ingest to bring about a peaceful death. So as I said, it's available in 22% um, of the country, but not in Massachusetts. Thank you for sharing that. That's wonderful information and really important uh, background, especially the Death Cafe piece, which is something that I think is on the kind of trending upwards. 
I wanted to ask, what are some of the people who disagree with this idea? Uh, what is what's some of the uh, backlash like in that community and that fight? How do, how is that playing out? So I think it's based on um, a religious worldview that only God is able to make a decision about someone being able to die. And that, you know, um, people um, should not be helping other people to, um, to die. So I think that's the major thing. People dress it up in other, other ways. But I think, you know, when you drill down to the core of it, it's really just that, um, you know, it's their worldview that, you know, people should not be in control of their own destiny. Sometimes they say, that they represent certain groups, but when you look at who they are and they say that they represent them and you do polling to find out, well, what is, what's really going on with this? The reality is that most, pretty much everyone supports medical aid and dying. So it's non-political because we all die. So Democrats support it, Republicans support it, liberals support it, and conservatives support it. Age groups, you know, up and down, you know, they're all. And these aren't, you know, like, you know, 35 to 33%. These are all over 50%. And usually it's about, a, you know, often it's a two to one ratio. Um, so, um, People of different ethnic backgrounds support it. People with disabilities support it. Um, uh, people who are religious and who are non-religious support it. So there isn't a real group that doesn't. Sometimes leadership is opposed to this. So for example, the Catholic Church is um, like many things, many social issue um, issues, they oppose this. But if you ask rank-and-file Catholics how they feel about it, it's 70% of Catholics support it. So if you do the ratio, that's over two to one support for medical aid and dying. So, you know, people say, you know, the Catholics are opposed to it, but it's a Catholic church and the Catholic hierarchy. Some disability groups come in and, and say they represent, um, you know, disabled people, of which I am one, um, and they don't represent me. And when people with disabilities are surveyed, they, by a small margin, support medical aid and dying more than people without disabilities. So it's not true that these people represent you know, the disability community. They may represent a, an organization within it, but it really is not um, accurate to say that they are, um, that they represent me or us. Thank you. That, those are good points, Roger. I wanted to ask as well, with some of the safeguards in place, with many of the different states who have adopted medical aid and dying, it seems like some of the safeguards 
ensure that there is going to be integrity with following through with this process. For example, uh, the patient needing to be of sound mind, uh, multiple doctors needing to agree that this person does indeed have a terminal diagnosis with, with likely less than six months to live. Do you, and with that, I've also heard that some groups will try to argue and say that it's an opportunity to take advantage of those who might not um, be able to advocate for themselves. However, with these things in place, um, it seems like it's a good structured system. Would you agree with how it's structured? Do you think there are any ways we could improve it? Or do you think it seems like a good system as it is? That's a really, really complex um, question. So um, when I was a medical director, I always would work on something called total quality improvement, which is always saying whatever your process is, it can get better. Same thing with medical aid and dying. The first thing, let me go over um, what people need to do. Now, this is more of a, in order to get medical aid and dying, this is more generalized because each state may be somewhat different. Um, and the, the laws are, but at the core, this has to be an adult resident of the state. They have to be terminally ill and an adult with less than six months life expectancy, which is the same thing we use for hospice eligibility. As you said, two different doctors have to certify that they're terminally ill, that there is no coercion, and the person is capable of making their own medical decisions. In Massachusetts, they've added a further safeguard to the legislation. Now this hasn't passed yet, but this is what it says at this point in time, that there has to be a mental health, mental health evaluation to make sure there's no impaired judgment. The person has to self-request this only, so there has to be no coercion going on, no guardian or healthcare proxy can ask for the person. They have to be able to self-ingest it, either by taking it by mouth, through a feeding tube, or even a rectal tube. It's voluntary for everyone involved, especially the uh, person requesting it, as well as the doctor and pharmacist. They have to make two requests in most states um, that with a 15-day waiting period. In some of the other newer changes that have happened um, for people who are on hospice and at end stage, the doctor can bypass the 15-day wait because about a third of people were dying um, at, at the end of life for people who waited too long. Um, they need to have two witnesses, one who's disinterested, and the death is due to the underlying disease to protect life insurance. There have been absolutely zero complaints about um, medical aid in dying from uh, any legal authority. So there's been really nothing to say that this hasn't worked and has been on the up and up. There are like zero cases. No one's been charged with anything or any crimes. As far as improvements, the reason I'm saying this is such a hard 
um, topic is every single one of these safeguards ends up being a barrier to someone at the end of life. And, you know, you, you have to say, okay, some barriers are appropriate. You know, we want to make sure that the individual is making this decision, you know, that they are terminally ill, things along those lines. But things can be streamlined uh, potentially. So, for example, does it really make sense if someone is already on hospice that they need to get a second opinion that they're terminally ill? So things along those lines, because it's really hard when you're dying to be able to go through all these steps and have an in-person meeting and, you know, be driving around places and, you know, and doing things when you just don't feel well. Absolutely. I'm sure you can, from your experience as well as mine, I think we both could agree with that. And being in a state of hospice would be, I'm sure, much more difficult to manage and advocate for yourself. In California, from my understanding, the initial law was written with a 15-day waiting period in which you had to wait and have, you had your initial conversation with your doctor, and then there was a 15-day waiting period, and you had to have another discussion and continue from there. I believe they just amended that the, uh, last year in 2021, and now it is only, I believe, a two-day waiting period. But I, I understand what you're saying in terms of that's something that maybe we could kind of get rid of because it's well, more of like that, a 15-day suffering period in some instances. I'm not sure of the California um, legislation. You know, I, I really concentrate on the Massachusetts legislation. But I do believe, and I may be wrong on this, I'm just going to say that up front. I think the two-day waiting period is for people who are imminently going to die, you know, that okay. couldn't make it through the 15 days. I believe right. that's the case. I'm not sure of that. Got it. And so you are in Massachusetts, and that is where you are taking up your own cause and advocacy for medical aid and dying. Can you tell us how long you've been, well, I, essentially it sounds like for over you know decades you've been advocating for this cause, but also from my understanding, there is, uh, I guess, like a legal uh, case going on in a sense. Can you tell us anything, just the grounds of it? Or I know- I that can you just basically give you high level. Um, I, the, it's still in, process. So I've been told I can't really speak about it. But basically, I am suing the Attorney General of the state, along with a, a doctor friend of mine, um, to be able to um, have medical aid and dying um, be permitted in Massachusetts. The basic ground is that there is not a state law prohibiting it. And without a state law prohibiting it, doctors should be able to practice, you know, make this part of their practice. There's precedent for this in Montana. So Montana uh, started having uh, medical aid in dying, I believe, in 2009. 
Uh, there was a gentleman named Baxter who sued for medical aid in dying. What usually happens is that the plaintiffs die before this, the court able to settle things and he died, uh, but his grandson uh, was able to make use of the law uh, when he developed pancreatic cancer, which is uh, really uh, you know, fortuitous for him. But there are really guidelines for this all over the place. You know, it's been written up before the law, and people have very much followed those guidelines that you know people have to make make their own decisions and be able to make it. And you know, you need to be certain that they are uh, capable of making it, and they're making it for the right reasons. And most people who end up um, going to their doctors and talking about it don't end up with a prescription. So it's something like one in six, you know, have an issue. The doctor is able to help them with the issue and they decide that they don't want it or the doctor thinks it's not appropriate at that point in time to do it. And over one in three people who get a prescription nationwide never use it because they feel like their dying process is not as bad as, you know, it might have been or other reasons, and they just uh, don't use a prescription. So it's not like everyone gets a prescription and says, oh, good, I've got the prescription, I want to die. And that's a huge argument from the opponents that all of us with terminal illnesses are suicidal. And we're not suicidal. We want to live. I, you know, I am now at the 20 year mark in my cancer. And, you know, wow. I, I impressive, very yeah, impressive. You know, and um, I understand that you also have cancer. Correct. And, yes. Oh, you know, it's an up and down, you know, things get better, things get worse, things get better, things get worse. And, you know, go on and, you know, live my life as best as I can, enjoy what I can enjoy. You know, we don't want to die. Certainly an inspiration, Roger. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, just, yeah, I, someone in your position, it gives me hope. I admire that you have been doing this for so long. I'm coming up on five years doing this dance as well. And it's five years is a long time. And I can't imagine, you know, as long as you've been going. So a lot of credit to you and thank you for sharing. And again, being that beacon of hope, very impressive as well with your fight and advocacy for your right to, you know, an end of life that is peaceful. One of the things I had noticed when I read an article about you, it was published in, in a Massachusetts publication. It was online. And it was referring to the uh, the court case that is ongoing. And the thing that I took away the most from the article was that the writer kept referring to it as physician-assisted suicide. And I feel like as this movement continues to go forward, having proper verbiage and getting away from that word suicide is very important. Um, I feel like when people hear that word, it's, it's a scary word to hear. And as you mentioned, most of the people who are 
terminally ill have a strong will to live and a strong desire to live and someone who dies by suicide does not want to be alive and uh so i i think separating from that that term is very important can you tell us anything about in your advocacy experience how you any sort of lingo you use when referencing medical aid and dying or death with dignity or uh hospice and all that uh care yeah so first of all let me just uh, do a couple of definitions people often say that um people who have medical aid and dying are being euthanized or the doctors are practicing euthanasia so euthanasia is illegal in in all the United States. And it's when someone gives someone with a terminal disease and pain and suffering a medication or a treatment to um, help them die. So that's what we do for our pets. You know, you, your pet's suffering, I hope you've never had to do it, but I've been down that road many times. My dog's suffering, and you know we give them medication to put them to sleep, and they die. So that's completely different from medical aid and dying, where the individual is taking the medication themselves. So there is no other person in this. Suicide is usually caused by someone with uh, some mental instability, um, and they feel that they see no future for themselves, but they do have a future. If they don't commit suicide, um, they will continue living. It's not like they're on death's doorstep. And to point out one of the ways that you can really differentiate this is 9-11. So for, um, I think there's still some people around who, um, or that there are more and more people around who don't remember 9-11, but on 9-11, the World Trade Center was attacked and there were people who were trapped on the upper floors of the World Trade Center and no one could get into them and they knew they were all going to die. Many of them died in the building, the collapse or the fire or the smoke, but a good number of people, I think it was, you know, well, it doesn't matter if it's one or you know a thousand decided to jump. They made a autonomous decision that they would rather die by jumping off a building than to continue suffering in the upper stories of the building. Know that death was you know not that far away. The medical examiner had to make a legal cause of death. You know, did these people die of suicide? They jumped from a building. Normally you say someone jumped from a building, it's suicide. And the medical examiner said, these people did not come to work thinking that they are going to die. They essentially made an autonomous decision. And he said that they died of as victims of terrorism. The same thing goes with medical aid in dying. Medical aid in dying is a person who's really at the end of life, knows her at the end of life, and feels that their life is just filled with suffering, and that they know that today is the best day of the rest of their life, and they don't want to see what the rest of it looks like. And so they take medication to go to sleep. 
and not wake up. If you look at suicide, it's almost always done alone. You know, people make a decision to do it and they go out and they do some social, you know, something to kill themselves, take pills, shoot themselves, you know, uh, have a car accident, drown, you know, anything along those lines. Medical aid in dying is always done under physician supervision. So they've talked to two physicians. If there's a question about their mental health, they see a mental health provider. It's thought about over time. Usually people speak with their families about this issue months ahead of time. So it's done in the light of day. The American Academy of Suicidology has said, this is not suicide. The American College of Legal Medicine says, this is not suicide. So it's being used as a pejorative term to conflate people who are um, um, using medical aid in dying with people who are suicidal. People with medical aid in dying aren't going to get better because someone gives them an antidepressant you know, or you know, keeps them from taking the medicine. Tomorrow is going to be a worse day. Believe me, as a primary care doctor, I had patients who attempted to commit suicide, you know, and I would take care of them. I would pump their stomachs. I would keep them alive. I'd follow them for years. You know, I'd work with, you know, the psychiatrist or psychologist. And there's one woman I can think of, you know, she stayed alive. She ended up getting married, having three wonderful children. And, you know, just as a, uh, you know, is wonderful. And I feel really good about what I did to intervene to try and keep her from killing herself. This is not what medical aid and dying is about. These people are not suicidal. I have a friend named Lee Marshall who is um, yesterday had to leave Massachusetts. Um, she has stage four breast cancer. She's gone through all treatments. She's on hospice and she's moving from Massachusetts in order to get medical aid and dying in New Mexico. And she's contacted doctors there. She's doing it by the book. She's establishing her residency. You know, she's got a little bit of time left. She's going out with her husband. And she has been, we've been talking about this for over half a year. She's thought about it. She's a psychologist. You know, she has done everything that she could to try and get medical aid in dying, thought about all the options. It's well thought out. I have no reservations that when Lee thinks it's time to get medical aid in dying, that she will be making the right decision for herself. And I'm not, I'm not her doctor, I'm her friend. You know, she'll be seeing doctors, she'll be talking about the issue, and they will make a decision that, you know, that, you know, they are able to support her in this. That's quite a story. Can you, as a friend... It, it, it pisses me off to no, no degree, you know, to I, know when that she has to do this. I just think of what this means for her husband, Paul. 
you know, that he, it, it makes me cry when I, when I tell this, but he's leaving all his support and where they've lived for years to go across the country to a casita, you know, to live there, to spend time with his wife. His wife will die far away from their homes. You know, he will be there and then he will need to come back home to to an empty house without his wife. It's just setting insult to injury. It just is, uh, it's completely painful and unnecessary. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's hard to believe that people are still having to do that move from their home and the place they, you know, call home just to have access to something like that. And most people can't afford to do that for many reasons, or they decide not to do it, you know, because they're leaving all their support, they're leaving their friends, they're leaving, you know, if they're religious, they're religious institutions. Um, it's expensive to do. And, uh, you know, they have to find new doctors. It's, it's really hard. And I think only a handful of people do it. Well, and not only that, but the, they're in the process of dying, uh, usually at the tail end of these things. So you add exactly. in all those massive responsibilities, plus you're feeling awful, probably physically, emotionally as well. And that's a tremendous amount to take on. And the other alternative is, you know, a possible poor death experience and suffering, which is not something anybody wants to go through. How do you see the the progression of medical aid in dying in not only Massachusetts, but the United States? Do you anticipate it expanding over the years? Uh, do you think it'll pick up in terms of popularity? Uh, it, it seems like it's even still kind of a taboo thing within the medical community. Well, actually, it's not. Remember, I was talking about all the different groups that support it. Doctors support it, too. 58% of doctors in national polls are 57%. Uh, percent. So when I started working on this, um, the legislators asked me to do a couple of things. One of the things they asked me to do was to get mass medical uh, position change from opposition. So mass medical, like most of the medical societies, were initially opposed to medical aid and dying. So I start. I'm a mass medical member, and I you know started working with uh, the mass medical society. We did a poll of doctors in Massachusetts, mass medical members, and by two to one majority of the people who took the poll. Uh, these doctors were in favor of medical aid in dying. And, you know, Massachusetts then, the, or Mass Medical subsequently changed from opposition to neutrality, like 13, I think it's a total of 14 different uh, medical societies are no longer opposed to medical aid in dying and other medical groups as well. Um, but I kind of got off the... Um, question a little bit. Um, 
Oh, yeah. whether this will sweep across the country. So I do, I do believe it. I, you know, it's it's um, awful. You know, so here I am in Massachusetts. I can't get medical aid and dying. But if I lived in Vermont or New Jersey or Maine or the three closest states, I could go ahead and get it. So people want this. Politicians who support this get elected. So it really is one of those things that, you know, can develop legs. When I started working on it, I think there were like uh, five or six um, jurisdictions that that had medical aid and dying. California did not. You know, Colorado did not. New Jersey and uh, Maine um, did not. Um, Hawaii also, and New Mexico, they, they all have. So every year, um, there's one or two states that are joining the list of places where medical aid and dying is permissible. And, you know, as I said, the politicians who support it, who are, you know, working with us, get reelected by 95% of the time. So it's not like it's a poison pill. Even in a you know place like Massachusetts, which is you know um, uh, very Catholic. Sure, thank you for sharing and that explanation. As a as a medical doctor, have you been involved with, or when you were practicing, were you ever involved with a patient who was using? or eligible to use the medical aid in dying or had access to that? Um, well, um, no, because Massachusetts, it's not permitted. So I was asked, but I, you know, um, did not really consider it. And I'm, you know, somewhat ashamed of that, that I didn't. Um, but, you know, just I could not, you know, I did not want to put my livelihood and my career in jeopardy uh, potentially going to prison for that because, you know, I thought it was not not permitted. Um, sure. Saying that some doctors will help people, and I think it goes way, way back, you know, for you know, millennia that doctors would help their patients to die. So what I would do when people were, you know, terminally ill in uncontrollable pain is I would put them on a morphine drip to the point where their pain was controlled, which means that basically they were asleep. I wouldn't give them food. I wouldn't give them medication. You know, I wouldn't give them adequate water and they would die. You know, I would talk to them first. This is what we're going to do. I would talk with their families. Everyone was on board and that's legal. And you say, oh, we have that. Why isn't that adequate? Because it's not up to the person to call the shots. It's up to the doctor to call the shots. And I've had friends, um, uh, Dave Folger, who lived about a mile, not even a mile from here, who died of pancreatic cancer. He had hospice, 
he had palliative care and he just said, you know, I've had it, you know, I'm suffering too much and I don't want to live. And he's told to stop eating and drinking. So voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. It was a horror show for him and his family. He suffered, I think it was seven or nine days that he went and you know, just became psychotic, started hallucinating. It was extremely hard on him and it scarred his family. Diane Rehm um, has written books on this. Uh, when My Time Comes, of which she interviewed me for the book. And she talked about something similar for her husband when he was dying of Parkinson's disease. They lived in um, Maryland, I believe, which still does not have medical aid and dying laws. And, um, you know, he it just went on and on and on and was a very painful experience for her and for him. And, you know, we can, we can do better as a society. We have to show mercy to all of us because we're all going to die. And so when it's my time to die, I expect the society should be showing me mercy. And when it's your turn to die, you know, we should be showing you mercy so that you don't have to suffer more than is necessary. I absolutely agree with that, Roger. It might sound silly, but we talked earlier about our pets and dogs, and I had to put my dog down to sleep uh, back in May of 2020. And ever since that instance and going through my own process with cancer, as well as medical aid and dying, I think about her a lot and how the best gift I gave her, because she was really struggling at the end of her life, was a way out. She shouldn't, no one should suffer like, like that. And I think we show this mercy to our animals, yet we don't even show it to each other. It seems very odd to me. Um, do you think as a society and in this country specifically, we have a difficult time and avoid having discussions about death? Oh, yeah. The big time. I mean, people don't even plan about um, their end of life you know, what they want, what they don't want, you know, they uh, go into doctors and they say the wrong things. So they don't say, you know, they, they don't know what their values are for living life. They think that uh, longevity is should be their goal. And if you go into a doctor and you say, what can I do? You know, the doctor will always try and give them something to help them, you know, if they want something else, there's always something else. It may have very little chance of success. Hospice and palliative care are great. And in hospice, people live about five weeks longer um, than usual medical care, just for that reason. They stop getting the, the poisons that they're taking to try and kill their cancer. And so they're able to have a better quality of life and actually a longer life statistically than people who try and do everything. And so people are afraid of death. You know, it's something that's hard, 
hardwired into us. What I tended to notice is that everyone knows that everyone's going to die, but it doesn't apply to them. They put on blinders and that's the way we get, get on with life, but it's really not in our best interest. So especially as you get older, uh, uh, let me rephrase that, especially as we get sicker and start um, getting closer to our end of life, knowing what's important to us should be what helps us to guide our lives instead of just looking for a longer life. Things like Death Cafe and other end-of-life discussion groups, and there are two in Falmouth that are ongoing, are really wonderful for people. They help to prepare you for what is inevitable for all of us. Absolutely. I'd have to agree as well. I found from my experience, it seems like people tend to avoid that discussion and kind of dance around the subject. Whereas the paradox is that you could argue one of the greatest questions that we have is what happens when we pass and what 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 is what goes on after if anything and uh yet we don't seem to take time to think or talk about that or plan for it as you mentioned what do you think with medical aid and dying one of the best benefits of that idea and giving that option to people is what what's the best thing about it this is going to sound a little strange, but what happens in places where they have medical aid in dying is that end-of-life care improves for everyone, not just the people who have medical aid who use medical aid in dying. So there are only, you know, really a handful of people, I think five, six thousand in the um, 24 years of medical aid in dying who've used have. Um, taking the medication throughout the country. So it's not very many. But hospice in Oregon doubled, went from 20% to 40%. More people die at home in Oregon than in any other state. And people want to die at home. They don't want to die in the hospital. Um, it, doctors have to learn to have end of life discussions. And many doctors don't like to have those discussions at all with their patients. And they try and put it off and they don't want to discuss it. So um, it improves the quality of our end of life all over. So that's, I think the biggest takeaway. So if you say, Let's say you, you would never use medical aid in dying for yourself. You should still support it because it will improve your care. And no one's going to force you to use medical aid in dying. So there's only upside for you. Beautiful answer. Beautiful. Love that. Thank you, Roger. Can you tell us about if you don't mind me asking your own personal experience, have you thought 
if you were given that option and had that ability to use that medication when you felt like it was your time to use it, have you envisioned what that would be like? And if you didn't mind sharing, we'd love to hear about it. If not, that's okay too. Yeah. We'll move on to no, another question. No, um, seven years ago, when I started working on this, I was an extremely private person. My, most of my friends didn't know I had cancer. Um, and I kind of decided that in order to do this work that I had to give up my privacy. So I'm okay with, with that. You know, I've, I kind of crossed that bridge already. So I haven't decided whether or not I'll use medical aid in dying. You may have read me say that, you know, but I want to have the right to be able to do it. I know what my life will probably be like, you know, um, with the cancer, you know, it'll go to my bones. I've seen people with this type of cancer, someone was holding their arm and it fell apart in their hands. You know, the bones just crumbled from the cancer. Um, they're going into the hospital at the time. It was just, you know, it can be really, really nasty. I don't know that I'll use it. I'm not afraid to die. You know, I've been thinking about it and it, I call it the gift of cancer. It helps me to be focused and, you know, to pay attention to what's going on around me, realizing that I may not be here next summer or whatever. You know, I just appreciate the time that I have. Um, but I don't know that I will use it if it's available and I'm suffering, I will certainly like to, you know, if not, I will probably figure out a different way of, um, of helping myself. But this is, as I said, justice. You know, if I can do this, we should be able to do this. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That was a powerful answer. I appreciate that. And just as you're moving forward, what is your plan? If you don't mind me asking, are you just going to keep putting everything you got out there and keep fighting for this cause? Do you have any other plans to, you know, uh, advocate for anything else or any other hobbies or I guess just well, future plans? What, what What's in store for you down the line? Okay. So um, when I started working on this, I, there are lots of things I'm, passionate about, you know, as you may have gathered, I'm not, you know, someone who just sits around and doesn't think about it. You know, we have, you know, where have solar rooftop, I have a solar battery, I drive, drive an electric car, I care a Ooh. ton about the environment. You know, that's really important to me. I care about social justice issues. Um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't like the term race. Um, I think that race leads us into racism, which I, you know, abhor. And so these are all really important things for me. But I made a decision seven years ago that I can try and do one thing that makes a difference. And if I really, really, really work a lot on this, that maybe I can get it done. But if I try and do 10 different things, that 
I'm not going to get all of them done. So my decision was to work on getting medical aid and dying in Massachusetts during my lifetime. And, you know, as part of that, I support people in other states. You know, I've lectured um, in several other locations outside of Massachusetts. You know, I'm doing uh, this podcast, which isn't Massachusetts-based, to try and get it done. My um, fight for medical aid in dying will not end once we have once it is authorized in the state. So when that happens, I need to work to try and have it implemented in the state so that people are able to get it, that people know about it, that doctors are trained in the best way of doing this. So that's, you know, that's part two of it. And then I support Compassion and Choices and will probably work with them in other states as well as I've already done uh, to try and help this become something that's available to everyone. It's not right if I have it. And I'm sorry, I don't know what state you live in. California. Oh, California. So you're you're good. Yeah, but I know, live here. I'm actually from Illinois, uh, which does not have medical aid in dying. So right. like you, I've talked a little bit recently and worked with, had the privilege of working with Compassion and Choices to try to get a little little groundwork going over in Illinois. So we'll see what yeah. happens. Roger, you are an impressive, marvelous man. Uh, what, what a story and your energy and advocacy is premier. Thank you for sharing so much of your, your story and life with us. Hasban, I want to send it over your way. You always seem to come up with some real good questions throughout this discussion. And I wondered if you had anything to ask Roger. Yeah, Roger, I just want to say I really enjoyed your answers and your passion as well. Um, I didn't have much. I just had uh, one question that I was doing. Uh, as I was learning more like about you, I came across an article you wrote for STAT. And the article actually has a link to a counterpoint from Ira Brock or Bayek. Uh, I might be saying that name wrong. Uh, that kind of offers a different perspective. And I was just wondering if you had read that and if you had any comments um, about it, if you had. Well, my counterpoint was was the article that I wrote. Oh, yours um, came in uh, second. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't remember which came in first. I think they had us do them both. Um, oh, okay. I, and it's been so many years since I've written that, and I've heard so many arguments. I've tried to bring up some of the arguments against it. You know, the uh, Hippocratic oath. You know. Uh, question, um, I suspect, was in that. And, you know, for me, being a doctor, I want to take care of people's suffering. And I want to do what's good for them. Um, I don't want an absolute, you know, I'm not going to help someone to die who's in, you know, in marked suffering. I want to take care of the person and I want them to have agency to be able to do what they think in their interest is the best thing for them when it's reasonable to be able to do that. And if they're dying and they want, you know, my help, which I can't give anymore to die, you know, I have no problem with that. 
and I don't think anyone in my profession should have a problem with helping them. We're supposed to be here to take care of our, of our patients and our patients define what their needs are. It's not that we define for our patients what their needs are and that we are, you know, when we do that, when we are, you know, acting in conscience, it's unconscientious to my mind because we are not putting the patient's needs ahead of our own. We're putting our needs ahead of theirs. And I think that people really have to think about that and really be there for our patients. Well said. Beautifully said. Thanks, Roger. Roger, I, I feel like uh, you've did such a wonderful job answering and enlightening us and our listeners on this topic. Is there anything else you'd like to share regarding the topic or anything really that you want people to know about the subject? Um, basically, if you agree with me that we should have medical aid in dying, do something. Talk to a friend or neighbor and say, you know, I've thought about medical aid in dying. You know, I think we should have it. What do you think? If you support it, join Compassion and Choices. Send them a little contribution. There's another organization that's also really good, Death with Dignity. Support them. Join both. You know, send a few bucks their way. It is really, you know, it all is helpful to us getting what we should have as individuals, which is a, an option at our end of life. If we don't want to use it, that's cool. You know, no one's forcing you to use it. But if you want it, or you think a loved one may want to use this, you know, please, now's the time to do it. Don't wait until the last minute because it's going to be too late. Excellent. Thank you. That was wonderful. Dr. Roger Kligler, everybody.